Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Corinthians, so if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you are using one of our pew Bibles, which you are welcome to to use, I'm working out of the ESV version, English Standard Version. If you don't have that version uh, and you want to follow along a little bit more closely, you can grab one of those chair Bibles that are underneath the racks in front of you or behind you. And if you don't have a Bible, we invite you to take those. Uh, those are yours to keep. We'll just replenish those as we need it. And, um, and we want you to, to have that. So, and if you're using that Bible, I think the First Corinthians is, chapter 1 is on page 670. So, Go ahead and take that, mark it up, use it. As you're finding 1 Corinthians, I just want to kind of add my salute to Bob Landig and Amy and Gino, their service to our country, and all of the young lieutenants that uh, we have and young enlisted guys that we have with us. We've got a couple guys that are going through ranger school here, which um, is no fun. It was the worst three months of my life when I was in the Army. And uh, we need to love these military guys and gals and uh, treat them well. Uh, I came here via Fort Benning for, through the Army, and I met a girl and married her and came back. And so, guys, um, we can't promise you a wife, but hopefully we can promise you um, a meal and, uh, and some genuine love while you are here serving us. So we really thank you for your service and uh, really appreciate what you're doing. It's a difficult time. We're fighting two wars, and as always, this is not a commentary on the current administration. This is just a commentary on the brokenness of politics. There seems to be much confusion in Washington about what we should do, and you guys are the ones that have to bear the brunt of that confusion. And so we thank you very much for your service. We are indebted to you, and we as a church want to serve you. Yes, amen. Amen. Well, a few months ago, I was thinking about what we would do as far as our next sermon series in uh, working through a book. This one of our values here is to work through uh, books of the Bible. We think that it is better for us to do that because um, we believe, obviously, that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, that it is completely true, that it's inerrant, it is God's word given to us. And so one of the things that we like to do here, we like to spend a vast majority of our preaching and teaching working our way through books. And, but at the same time, there's a pastoral tug that, you know, sometimes you want to handle issues and topics that you know are issues in the church. And so a few months ago, I was wrestling with what would be next to preach on, what book would be next, but also thinking, boy, there's some things that I really want to teach on. And, you know, one of them was just kind of unity in the church, not that there's disunity, but just people really being on the same page. I wanted to preach about what, you know, this age of sexual obsession that we live in where uh, there's all sorts of confusion about, about how we should conduct ourselves sexually. Uh, I wanted to preach on that. I wanted to preach on spiritual gifts and kind of what their role is in the church. I wanted to preach on the resurrection and the gospel. I, I wanted to preach on uh, people uh, being selfish and self-absorbed. And I thought, hmm, where, where would be a good place to go for all of those things? First Corinthians, because it's a, it's a letter written to a church that is absolutely full of crazy people kind of like us. Corinthians was this church that was like at the intersection of commerce and trade and, and, and 
education and a whole bunch of talented people and tremendous carnality. And so it was a gifted, goofed up group of people. And it's that type of place that God wants to plant a church. And so we're going to work our way through 1 Corinthians. Let me read the first nine verses. I'll pray and then we'll work our way back through it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us understand these words. Lord, we come to you with great gratitude, thankfulness, humility as we stand under your word. Lord, that may not be the natural disposition of all of us in this room. We Often in our culture, come to your word as if it's optional or if it's merely helpful. But Lord, would you now, by your Holy Spirit, give us a special grace of deep and abiding humility as we come to this truth that is ancient and eternal and for us. And Lord, would you illuminate our hearts, not so that we would merely learn a helpful tip on how to live a better life, but that we would see Jesus, Lord, our greatest need for every person in this room, whether we are already Christians or whether we are not yet believers in Jesus, all of us need to see Jesus this morning. And so, Lord, I pray for the Christians that are gathered in this room, that we would, that our hearts would be stirred with affection and joy and gratitude for what Christ did on the cross as we celebrate communion together this morning as a congregation. God, would you rouse us out of our callousness and our tiredness and our carnality and our self-absorption and would you shake the cobwebs out of our mind and our hearts so that we would see Jesus this morning that's that's the deepest need of every heart in this room to see Jesus so lord for the christians in this room would you would you rouse us from slumber and and set our hearts fully ablaze on Christ and lord for those that are in this room that are not yet Christians are not yet born again. They have not yet repented and believed in Jesus. Lord, would you would you do the most kind and gracious miracle of all? Would you would you make them alive? For those that think they're Christians already, but they're not. Lord, would you convict them of sin and turn them to trust in Jesus? And Lord, for those that are aware that they are away from you or that still investigating Christianity or uncertain of its claims, God, would you make Jesus altogether lovely 
so that they would trust in Him and turn and repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. And then, Lord, as we leave this place, I pray as we celebrate what Jesus did on the cross, that we would all go out saying, Surely, Jesus is King. I pray these things in Your mighty name. Amen. Well, here's my plan. I'm going to work our way back through these nine verses. Then I've got four summary thoughts. And then at the end of my message, we're going to continue our worship by receiving communion together as a church family. Communion is something that traditionally Christians have done since the first century, since the time of Jesus and the apostles. And the night before he was betrayed, when Jesus was gathered with, with his disciples, before he was crucified, he instituted this last supper that we now do in commemoration on a monthly basis as a congregation. It's something that Christians do. And so if you're not yet a Christian, uh, we're really glad that you're here, but, but this is kind of a family meal, so you're welcome to stay in your seats while we come and receive this meal afterwards. There's no judging, no condemnation. We take very seriously what Jesus did on the cross, and we don't want to make it rote or just let it be lost in tradition. We want to cause every person in this room to think about what Jesus did on the cross and examine their lives in light of that. And so we're going to do that at the end of this message and continue in worship. But let me work my way back through 1 Corinthians there. In the first verse, Paul calls himself, he, that he was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Remember when we were reading last week in Acts chapter 18 about Sosthenes, who was one of the leaders in the synagogue, who was a Jew evidently at that time, but then became a Christian. And then as Paul was planting this church, right next to the synagogue in that guy Crispus's home, Sosthenes, who was one of the leaders, evidently was an early convert of Christianity. And remember when we read at the end of Acts 18, verses 1 through 17, that Sosthenes was dragged out and beat for the name of Jesus. And now evidently the same guy becomes one of the leaders in the Corinthian church. So, you know, again, when everybody's in the Moses line or the Abraham line, when you get to heaven and kind of want to go, you know, to the, to the big stars in the Bible, I'm going to go to Sosthenes. I'm like, home slice, you took a punch for the gospel, dude. He's like, I know, man. I was just minding my business. Paul came, preached the gospel. I accepted Jesus. And before I know it, I got dragged out back and I was getting kicked in the face. And now I'm a leader of the Corinthian church and I'm going to go, way to go, Holmes. Way to go, man. You endured. I mean, Sosthenes, in fact, if we had another child, that name would be in the running. Sosthenes Evangelista. What a name. But Paul says that he was called by the will of God. Listen, just a little, little shout, a little tidbit in here for young men in this room who might be feeling a, a sense of God into ministry. Listen, uh, ministry is a call to death. And you, if you are considering being called into something, especially if you are considering giving your life away to vocational ministry, to serve the church, it is a call to death. In American church culture, we tend to make much of charismatic or gifted personalities. And we've created sort of a youth group culture where that becomes sort of a romantic sort of thing to go do ministry. We take kind of the sharpest kid in the youth group who's got a little bit of leadership and we just start speaking to him as if he's called in the ministry. And then 10 years in, that guy's in his late 20s and he's not called into ministry and things go very badly for him because what pushed him into ministry was some sort of ego trip or a need to feel important or to get satisfaction from people who make you important in your life. And let me tell you, if you are a young man who's considering that or feeling that tug 
let me caution you because in order to give your life away for the gospel, that's not just something you do because there are no other options or because it makes you feel warm inside or you get a lot of satisfaction out of it. You, if you are called to be an apostle or if you are called to be an elder in a church, if you are called to give your life away from the gospel, for the gospel, it is a call of death. That's why pastors should be the humblest cats in the crew, man. That's why if you ever see like a, a, a parking spot out there that says like, Brad, go somewhere else, man. Run over it. Get a can of spray paint and, spray paint and graffiti that mug and go to some other church. If you ever sense sort of a, an air of privilege or, or, or highness in any of the elders or pastors here, run run, go somewhere else. To be an apostle, which was the early men who had the authority of Christ because they witnessed the resurrection of Christ, the early 12 disciples, then plus a few others, and Paul, because Jesus came back to him and he saw the risen Christ. These early apostles, capital A, were the men who had the authority to write the Bible. So a couple of things there. If there's anybody that calls himself a modern-day apostle, run. They're, they're not an apostle. All the... All the apostles are dead. Okay? Paul is dead. Peter is dead. John is dead. All those cats are dead. And they had the apostolic authority to give us the word. But God has given the church to continue the teaching of the apostles' doctrine, which is the word of God, elders. And elders should be, they're they're the pastors of the church. They should be the humblest guys out there, man. They should be the humblest dudes out there. And I pray that we create a culture at Crosspoint where men who are called into the ministry, whether it be full-time service to the church or in anything, whether it is working in kids' church, there's just an air of humility. Because being called to serve the church and serve Christ is a call to die to yourself, not to heap unto yourself privilege and esteem. Let's keep reading. didn't mean to spend that much time on it, but the parking lot thing got me a little excited. Sorry about that. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Here's a couple things I want you to see in this verse as we move through it quickly. Is that the church, this letter is written to the church. Many modern Christians make the mistake of reading the Bible merely as an individual document written to them it's not written to you specifically alone in a vacuum the gospels the new testament epistles the whole bible is written to a group of people who are in community together and so if you are a modern day christian and you think that you can live life outside of a local church you are first of all you're fooling yourself and secondly you are completely unbiblical The Bible is written to a group of people who are called. In fact, he says it here. You are called to be saints together with all of those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So there's a couple things in here. Number one, you need to be a member. You need to be accountable. Your name needs to be known. You need to be part of a local church. And if you are investigating this local church, we have a membership class that Reynolds mentioned in October Come to that. That doesn't obligate you to join, but come to that. Hear our heart. If this isn't the place for you, then go to another church that believes the Bible and talks about Jesus a lot. 
and go there and join and give your heart and make yourself accountable and become part of what they do. Don't just sort of float around. I spoke specifically to kind of the young college age, 18 to 25-year-old generation, kind of just floats around from church to church. Man, don't do that. It is terrible for your soul. You're teaching yourself terrible spiritual habits. Don't do it. You're supposed to be in a church. But secondly, we are also connected to all churches that believe in Jesus. He talks about this church that's in Corinth, but then he relates them together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just stop here and say that we are connected to other Christian churches in a very vital way. Churches that are in all sorts of denominations. So let me just say publicly here, we love Baptist churches. We love Methodist churches. We love Presbyterian churches. We love uh, Pentecostal churches. We love non-denominational churches. We love my dog is bigger than your dog churches. You know, church names can get crazy. Holy brethren on the most high mountain. We're better than you. Ha! Church, we love it all. We love all Christians and we are connected to. Now, we may have some some differences with different people and we may have some points of doctrine where we are we are in disagreement with but but as far as what we believe about what Jesus did on the cross and the necessity of faith alone in Jesus for salvation all Christians all Christians believe that or should believe that and so we are connected to all of those type of churches and so we love churches man we love all types of worship we love historical traditional worship we love tr- liturgical worship we love casual worship. We are, we are not a reaction to anything. We, we don't look down the end of our nose at our grandparents' generation and their church. We don't look down the end of our nose at people who are more... We love church. I love church. I'd, I'd stay here all day if you guys would stay here with me. I love it. I love church. I'd go to your grandma's church and I'd love it. I'd wear a suit and I'd rock out to the organ. I don't care. We're not a reaction. We're, we're just trying to do what God has called us to do in this place and this time. But we're connected to these people and we should love other churches. We should speak well of other churches. The church that maybe you came from because something wasn't right. Speak well of that church. That is a group of people who like you, who Paul is saying we are called together to be humble worshipers of Jesus. We love the church, man. This is not the place where we badmouth churches. We love the church. We love the church. We love the church. Do you realize, listen to this, you are more intrinsically and eternally connected to the Christian believer in another sort of sliver of the church that is culturally 180 degrees on the opposite spectrum than you are than your own blood relative who rejects Jesus. You are closer to the African-American brother or sister in their church who does music maybe differently than you do than you are to your own brother or sister who may reject Jesus. You are closer to the converted Muslim terrorist turned Christian who is now your eternal brother or sister in Christ than you are to the cousin you grew up with that has rebelled against Jesus' kindness. Do Do we realize we're going to be spending eternity with all those who in every place have called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Black, white, 
Mexican, Oriental, all of us. And all of the rest of us mutts in between. All of us. That, when that seizes a community, especially a community in a history, in a place, in a region where racism has historically plagued our culture, when that seizes a community, a special sort of aroma of Christ rises from that type of place. It does. Do we see it that way? I hope, I, hope, I pray that we do. So we're the church of God that's in Corinth, now in Columbus, to those sanctified we are called to be saints together. And then he goes on, and just one more little point there. He says that we are called to be holy, sanctified. In our modern church sort of vocabulary, those words have almost kind of become extinct. They're not cool, evidently, anymore. And churches want to just sort of preach a helpful message. And the moment you start talking about sin, that if you remain in it, will send you to hell forever separated from God and the call of the scriptures to live lives pursuing him and holiness. That's not to say by any stretch of the imagination that there's not grace. Look, we are all sinners. We are all, we are all in need of grace for the rest of our lives. But the call of scriptures is to press in towards holiness, towards living like Jesus and to do that together and to be a community that is filled with grace that puts pressure on one another to live according to the scriptures so we know each other. We ask each other tough questions and we put pressure. That's why you need to be in a church because you need people who graciously and lovingly have permission to put pressure on you, man, to put pressure on you. I remember... (laughs) I remember like it was yesterday. I see a couple young lieutenants that graduated from West Point in here, my alma mater. And I remember my pastor at West Point when I was a junior and I was my junior year at the academy and I was wavering in my walk with the Lord. And I was starting to drift away from God and drift into sort of some secret sin and secret sin and New York City, 50 miles away from campus. Friends, that is not a good mix. And I would just sort of not be around on some weekends. And all of you former cadets know what I'm talking about. I would just sort of not be around on some weekends. And my pastor called me in and he began to question me because he had heard some things. And he began to put his finger on my life. And he did with the scripture. He was calling me in, in grace and love, into holiness and sanctification and encouraging me to live for Christ, because that is the best way, that is the most joyful way to live, to live in a pursuit of holiness. And Paul writes to these Corinthians, and he's saying, put this pressure on one another that you live for Jesus. And I pray that we would be a type of church that does that, and that has extreme and utter grace for one another. There's no judging or religiosity or looking down the end of your nose at people who have all sorts of brokenness in their life, but there is gentle, loving, Christ-like pressure on all of us to live for the glory of God and become more like Jesus. Verse 3, let's keep going. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. A couple of things just jump out to me here. Number one is how striking it is that Paul would give thanks for the Corinthians. Today we're going to get through verse 9, and then for the next few months we're going to cover 16 and a half chapters, or 15 and a half remaining chapters, where the Apostle Paul literally just unloads on the Corinthians. In chapter 5, he's going to say, hey, 
the guy that is sleeping with his stepmom, tell him to stop it. You selfish people that are cutting in front of one another in the communion line, stop it. You carnal yahoos that are bringing prostitutes into the temple, stop it. You who are abusing spiritual gifts, puffed up with pride, stop it. You litigious Christians who are suing each other, instead of sharing your stuff, you're suing each other over your stuff, stop it. There, I mean, it's enough. I mean, church, I mean, it'd be enough to just blow that joint up, man. Just leave the place right off, right off on your horse, Paul, and go to the next city and kick the dust off your feet and say, put that in your pipe and smoke it, Corinth. But he hangs in there with these people and people who are sleeping with their stepmoms, sleeping with prostitutes, rich Christians who are not caring about poor Christians, people who are abusing spiritual gifts, people who are jacked up. Paul thanks God for them. People who are sleeping with their stepmom, bringing prostitutes into the temple to have sex with him, getting drunk on the communal wine rather than sharing it for communion, jacking up spiritual gifts. Paul is thanking God for them. Yeah, all right, that's a very weak, but I... And so what does that have to do with us? Well, Billy Joe's been here for a while and he hasn't signed up for the nursery yet. He's not pulling his weight. I mean, come on, we need to be gracious towards one another. Paul's gratitude for a carnal, confused, selfish people is striking. Likewise, we should have deep humility and thankfulness for one another. Have you been a Christian for a while? And are now you just sort of, your default is to look down the end of your nose at Christians who just don't quite get it. Read the first nine verses of Corinthians and let the humility and the gratitude of Paul rise up in your heart so that you might give thanks for other people in your life who uh, certainly are not any worse off than the Corinthians. Let's keep going. Verse six, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse eight, this is beautiful who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, I'll read it and then I'll make a point and then we'll go into our final four points. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In these nine verses, Paul mentions Jesus or Christ. He mentions Jesus in some form, nine different times. Paul was saturated with the gospel. He was saturated with Jesus. And he had, what is striking here to me, is that he's talking to a group of people who were sinning terribly. And yet he writes to them in verse 8, he says that Jesus is the one who will sustain you to the end and make you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence, listen to this, Paul's confidence in the grace of Jesus, especially in light of the Corinthians' carnality, is stunning and unbelievably encouraging to me and to you, hopefully, 
as we struggle with our own sin as individuals and as a church. Paul's confidence in the grace of Jesus is stunning. He says to these people, it is Jesus who has called you. It is Jesus who has assembled you together. It is Jesus who has gifted you. And it is Jesus who will sustain you to the end. And then ultimately who will make you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation for Paul was all of Christ. It began with Christ. It is sustained with Christ. And it ends with Christ. Salvation for Paul is all of Jesus. So let me kind of put a little little chart up on the screen for you to see. Just to get an appreciation for how great a salvation we have in Christ. There's just a few words that describe salvation. You can go ahead and put it up on the screen. Salvation. This is the way it happens for every person. Whether you realize it or not, this is how Jesus comes into your life. First, before we even get to that first word there, the gospel, you need to know, and we talk about this a lot, that sin, our rebellion, that all of us have participated in as people, all of us, are in rebellion, born sinners, away from God. That has not just neutralized us, but that has killed us spiritually. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul writes again in Colossians 2 that you're dead in your trespasses. Romans 3 is a beautiful chapter that is really hard. It's a stinging indictment against humanity. It says that we're all dead in our sin. And so all of us, we start out, we're physically alive, we may be emotionally alive, we may be able to grow up and do wonderful things for in the world, we may be able to invent things, run companies, do all sorts of incredible things because we have this image of God, but we are spiritually dead and apart from Christ. That's how we start out. The Bible is clear about that. And the gospel, when it is preached, it comes, the gospel, call it, it comes and it brings life. It, literally, the gospel, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel in itself has power. That's why the gospel needs to be preached. It needs to be spoken. That's why it needs to be shared. Nobody gets saved apart from the words of the gospel. It doesn't mean it needs to be in a sermon or in a Sunday school class or in some sort of witnessing, but the the truth of the gospel, which is that all of us are separated from God in our sin and that Jesus took God's wrath on the cross for sinners on his own shoulders. That's what the that's what the prophet Isaiah says, is that he bore the iniquity of us all, that Jesus comes and he becomes the punishment. He becomes the sacrifice and the substitute on the cross for all those who will repent and believe in Jesus. And so Jesus bears the wrath of God for us. And then three days later, to vindicate his victory over sin and death, he comes back to life in the resurrection and ascends to heaven, is now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And so the gospel is the good news that Jesus bore the punishment for our rebellion against God for us if we repent and believe in Jesus. And the gospel, when you hear that, you need to hear that in some variety or some form. You need to hear that you're accountable. You need to hear that God made a way for you in Christ and that you must respond in turning from your sin or self-righteousness and trust in Jesus as the only sacrifice for your sins. You need to, that's the gospel. And some communication of that, of that truth is the gospel, whether it's through a sermon like right now or whether it's through a one-on-one conversation or some other way. That news, which is what the gospel is, is the power of God for salvation. It has the power of life with it. And when it hits a heart, it makes it alive. When it hits a heart that God is bringing to himself, it makes that heart alive. 
That heart doesn't have a little bit of life in it. That then it sort of musters up to respond to that. The gospel so powerful that it creates, as Augustine, the early church father says, it creates what it commands. So don't think that you need to get yourself into a place where you can believe Jesus enough to be saved. The gospel brings with it the power to save. And it hits a human heart. And you know what it does? Then it makes it alive. That's a fancy way. The biblical way of saying it is regeneration. It makes you alive. The gospel hits your dead heart and it brings life, breath, vitality. And you know what the first breath of new life is? I've been at four baby deliveries because I have four children. I almost fainted on every one of them. You'd think you'd get better by the end. But on the last baby even, I was holding onto the rails, white as a ghost, man, just wimping out totally while mama was giving birth. But when that baby comes out of that birth canal, the first thing they do, there's that slap. I don't know if they actually do that. I maybe just, no, they don't. But anyway, the first thing that baby does is breathe, breathe, breathe. And that's what faith and repentance is. You trust in Jesus. You turn from sin. And so the first breath of a person who has been made alive is trust in Jesus. So that's why the gospel is such good news, friends. Because you can't trust in Jesus on your own. You're dead. If you're a sinner and you're away from Christ, you bring nothing to the table. And that's the scandalous good news of the gospel. He makes you alive. He gives you the faith. He gives you the new heart. That's the power of the gospel. It hits a dead human heart and it makes you alive. And all you need to do now is cry. Cry. Let the spiritual Holy Spirit, OBGYN, Dr. Holy Ghost, hit you and breathe. And your first breath. No, you lost it. You lost too late. You lost it. You had it almost. You lost Your first response is breathe, and that's regeneration. Right there, faith and repentance. Now, friends, all of that happens like bam, bam. It's not like a step process. This isn't some some formula. You hear the gospel, it gives like boom, you trust in Jesus. Your eyes, the scales fall from your eyes, and you can see Him. And a rebellious, dead, callous heart, all of a sudden trust in Jesus. Where does that come from? Because you figured it out on your own. No, you were dead. And the gospel brought life. And if it's happening to you right now, cry. Cry in faith and repentance towards Jesus. See Him. Realize you're accountable. You know what that's evidence of? That's evidence that you are in the birth canal right now of God's grace and salvation. Trust in Jesus. You are born again. Right now you are being born again. Trust in Jesus. And then you know what happens? Like... Bam! Right next after that, you're justified. All of a sudden, you are in right standing before God. I don't care if you are the worst sinner in this room. Bam! In the eyes of God, you are seen as right in God's eyes. You still may be struggling with sin, but at this moment, I'm going to do it again. Bam! You can... This is a little sturdier. And last Sunday, after I was hitting this thing, about 3 o'clock, my hands were really starting to hurt. I'm going to start putting some ibuprofen on board early so I can just go. But bam, at that moment, you are justified, right? That God sees Christ's righteousness in you. You are immediately adopted into Christ's family. And then immediately, this process of sanctification 
begins in your life because you have a new heart. And now the things that you love are the things that Jesus loves. And even though you're still maybe struggling with sin, the process of sanctification begins in your heart. And all of this, friends, happens in an instant. That's the power and the beauty and the the unbelievable grace of the gospel. That's why Hebrews 7.25, the writer says, how can we neglect such a great salvation? He is able to save to the uttermost. That has happened to you. Maybe it's happening to you right now. Or maybe it happened to you ten years ago. Whatever the case, this should stir our affections for a God who saves sinners like us. This is great news. And Paul writes this to jacked up people. And he says that Jesus is the one who saves you. Jesus is the one who sustains you. And Jesus is the one whose sinner is going to present you before his father guiltless one day. Friends, that is unbelievably good news. Unbelievably good news. Yeah. Still weak. But you're getting there. Half of you agree with that. Praise Jesus. We have a church of seven. And then what happens is you persevere. The Holy Spirit comes and those who truly know Jesus, those who have truly been born again, I believe the biblical evidence is clear that they stay Christians. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle with sin. But it means that salvation is all of God. It starts with God. It's sustained by God. And it ends with God. And so if you've truly repented and believed in Jesus... And you have been born again. Nothing, as Jesus says in John 10, can snatch you out of his hand. John 6, he says, I will lose nothing that the Father has given me. And so let that be, for those of you that are struggling with sin and maybe doubting your salvation, let that give you confidence to go after Christ. If the biblical truth of perseverance or eternal security causes you to push back and say, well, I can do whatever I want because 10 years ago on a Thursday night at youth camp, I raised my hand and I prayed a sinner's prayer. And now, you know, I can kind of goof around in college and do whatever I want, do this with my girlfriend, get drunk when I want to. If, that, if you think that you're saved and you can do that, then you need to read Romans 6 that says that we shouldn't sin so that grace may abound. And in fact, if you read that whole chapter, it would say you're probably not saved. You're probably not saved. And so if the truth of God's perseverance for the Christian, if the truth that those who are truly Christians stay Christians by the grace of God, if it causes you to step back and get lazy in sin, then I believe you need to repent and truly see Jesus for the first time today. But for those of you that are struggling with some habitual sin and that causes conviction in you and confidence, let that press you deeper into the truth of what God did for you on the cross, realizing there's nothing you can do that will cast you out of his presence. So let that let you run to a father, not away from the father. And then ultimately we die and we're glorified. And we're going to get into that when we go get into 1 Corinthians 15. But that, that, is, that is Paul's confidence in the grace of Jesus that... He calls us, He sustains us, and ultimately He makes us guiltless. So the guy who in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to kick out of the church because he's sleeping with his stepmom. Then we learn of, very likely, repents of his sin and comes back to the church in Paul's second letter in 2 Corinthians. That deep and wicked sin, there's coming a day when Jesus holds him up and says, This is my brother. 
guiltless. So do you have some stain in your past that you just think will never be washed away? Friends, hear the words of the gospel of grace. If you're a Christian, you will be, you will be guiltless before God the Father because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. That should stir your affections for Jesus. For the secret sin that I know I have been involved in in my life, for the things that I know that I have been forgiven of, but even that if I knew that you knew, they would mortify me because I am ashamed of them, to know that there's going to come a day when I'm going to stand before Jesus and all of that is washed away as far as the east is from the west and I will be right and perfect. I know that is my place positionally in heaven right now, even as I speak, but to stand before God someday and to be guiltless, friends, there's nothing better in this universe than that. There is no sin, no lure of Satan that can pull me away from the joy of that day when I long for when I stand before Christ, guiltless, friends. That is the power of God for salvation. And that's yours if you're a Christian. And that should stir your affections for Jesus. So let's move. And we end with this. Four quick points. In summary, number one, selfish, self-absorbed people like us need to be constantly redirected to Jesus. Selfish, self-absorbed people like us need to be constantly redirected to Jesus. Paul mentions Jesus nine times in nine verses. The tenor of the whole book of Corinthians is Jesus and what Jesus did. We talk about Jesus at this church. We believe passionately in the Trinity and we believe that God, as John 1 says has given us Jesus to explain the Father. And the Holy Spirit was given us so that we might make much of Jesus, to exalt Jesus, to make Jesus known. We constantly need to remember what Jesus did. And we need to be redirected to Jesus over and over and over again. Which leads us to our second point. The totality of the Christian life is Christ. It's not merely initiated by Christ. It is all of Christ. We're called. We're sanctified. We're called to be together as a church. We're graced with gifts. We're confirmed. We're kept. So that we would wait for Christ. And we're made to endure by Christ. We're sustained by Christ. And ultimately, we will be guiltless before Christ someday when our sanctification is complete. The totality of the Christian life is Christ. In kind of modern American church, there's this sort of wave of people who would preach sort of self-help sermons and say kind of, well, this is, you know, do this. This is how to have a better thing. And that they'll tag on the end of it. Now, if you want eternal life... Raise your hand that you accept what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus has just kind of seen, he's presented a sort of a, a ticket to a better life. Jesus is not merely a ticket to a better life. He is life. Paul writes in Acts 17, quoting a pagan poet. He says that in Christ we live and move and have our being. Jesus is the totality of the Christian life. He is the beginning. He's the middle. He's the end. He's the sum. Life is Christ. Christ is not merely our ticket into heaven. Heaven is Christ. It is being in His presence forever. The totality of the Christian life is dwelling on the glory and worshiping what Jesus did on the cross for us. It is Christ. That's our life. Number three, understanding the gospel means that we should overflow with grace towards others. Understanding the gospel means we should overflow with grace towards others. I've read this many times before. But we've got a lot of new folks, and so you need to hear this as well. I love to read the Puritans. They were guys that lived right after the Protestant Reformation in the late 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s. Many of them founded the United States. They came over. They wore some goofy clothes, but they were some straight cats, man. They, they had good theology. 
And one of them is a man named Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite Puritans. He wrote a book. He was a pastor in uh, Scotland, I believe. And he wrote a book called The Bruised Reed about the verse about how Jesus is compassionate and tender towards us, quoting that, that Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah that Jesus quotes about himself, that a bruised reed he will not break, meaning Jesus is compassionate with jacked up people like us. And he says this, about how we should overflow with grace towards one another. Because remember, Paul is writing this letter. He's about to unload on these carnal Christians for 15 chapters, 15 and a half more chapters. But yet he starts off with grace and gratitude. And this is what Brother Sib says. He says, the Holy Ghost, it's old Puritan language, the Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that that spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful disposition. We must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. The Church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. Oh, and the next time your brother or sister is driving you nuts and you want to call your friend from Crosspoint and gossip or you want to email somebody in the church just complaining about how messed up your friend is. Let, 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 let this truth of Sibs that the Holy Spirit is content to dwell in that smoky, offensive soul and he's content to dwell in this smoky, offensive soul. Understanding the gospel rightly means we should overflow in grace and humility. One more. How can we, read, how can we even think about being gracious towards one another without reading Jonathan Edwards' daily resolution number eight? As a 21-year-old man, Jonathan Edwards, the Greatest mind in the history of the American church and one of the greatest minds in the history of America wrote 70 daily resolutions. And in number eight, he wrote this. I've read it many times. He says, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing as if nobody had been so vile as I and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. And then I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself. And prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. And so when I see a brother or sister stumbling with some, some sin that I think they should be over by now, I want to remember the words of Jonathan Edwards and say, Oh, may, let this be an opportunity for me to humble myself and examine my own heart and confess my own shame to God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, he says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Listen to Paul's view of himself. Now, here's the he wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. And this is what he thinks of himself. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me is the foremost. Jesus Christ, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I've often wondered, how, Paul, do you really think you're the foremost sinner? And as I get deeper into the gospel, I think that's true. I am the worst person I know. Because I know myself best, and I know the depths of depravity of my own thought life. And so I know what Paul is saying here, is that in light of the gospel of grace in his life, 
He is the chiefest of sinners. And when we see ourselves that way, it stirs our affection for Jesus and it makes us utterly humble and compassionate towards other people who we want to punch in the mouth. Understanding the gospel means we should overflow with grace towards others. And finally, for understanding the gospel means we should have great confidence in grace. Great confidence in grace. When you understand the power of grace, it gives you great confidence in what Jesus can do. Listen to Peter's words in First Peter verses one, starting or chapter one, verses three to seven. We have it on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. Listen to the accent of the action. Listen to the one who's doing the acting and the verb. It's not you, man. It's not you, struggling sinner. It's not you, person who's wrestling with believing in Jesus. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, verse 6, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, be confident. It is God who can save even the most wretched of sinners. Be confident in grace. Are you struggling with some sin that you just can't seem to kick? Be confident in grace. Are you praying for a loved one who is seemingly at this point in their life far from God and there seems to be no hope? Don't place your trust in their will. Place your trust in the gracious will of God that can save even the most lost of sinners. Have confidence in grace. Have confidence in God's goodness rather than our own fleeting will. I've been reading a lot of Spurgeon lately. One more. It's not the only guy I read, but if you're going to read a lot of somebody, Spurgeon's a great guy to read a lot, read a lot of. He writes this in his little book called Olive Grace. In a sermon that he preached, he says, and this is so encouraging, and I end with this, and then we'll receive communion together. May I therefore urge upon any who have no good thing about them, who fear that they have not even a good feeling or anything whatever that can recommend them to God, to firmly believe that our gracious God is able and willing to take them without anything to recommend them and to forgive them spontaneously right now. That's what the gospel does. It comes and it brings life to a dead heart. And in a moment it justifies, adopts, and sanctifies even the worst of sinners. Would you, let me start again, to forgive them spontaneously, not because they are good or because you are good, but because He is good. That is confidence in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian 
have that type of confidence in what Christ did. Struggling sinner, have that type of confidence in what Christ did. Paul had it for the Corinthians because he knew the power of the gospel. And so, Crosspoint, in 2010, we too, as we gather around this table, can have great confidence in what God can do in our lives and in the lives of those we love. Well, let's pray and ask God to seal this in our hearts before we receive together. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for Paul's utterly Christ-saturated focus. And thank you for the grace that seemed to drip from him. Lord, I confess my own selfishness and self-absorption and impatience with myself and with others. And I am freshly and deeply convicted by Paul's humble gratitude for the Corinthian church. Lord, it is so easy for our hearts to grow cold. And so, God, would you warm our hearts for the cross and for Jesus and for one another. And as we receive communion together today, God, if there's anybody in this room who's on the fringes and just, for whatever reason, they've just not really connected with a local church or this local church, Lord, would you, would you be so kind as to awaken their hearts that they need to be called together to do life together, as Paul writes to these Corinthians. So God, there's somebody in this room who's, I don't know, they're just sort of on the fringes. God, would you bring them close to the fire of your grace? Would you knit them together with either this church or some other one that believes in Jesus? Lord, if there's somebody in this room who is uh, struggling with secret sin, Lord, would you, would you fight their temptation by showing them it's not by gritting their teeth and doing better, but it's about seeing an altogether far more lovely joy, which is Jesus. Would you stir their hearts for love and joy and satisfaction in Christ and not in that dark corner? Would you do that, I pray? And with a person who feels condemnation, would you help them realize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you are able to save to the uttermost. The gospel saves It saved me 20 years ago from being a young man who was living a life of sexual license and selfishness and self-absorption and pride and arrogance. And it broke the power of my sin. God, thank you. God, it can do that today, Lord. I know that is the case. So, Lord, for that person hiding in a dark corner and playing a religious game, would you melt that heart? Let them see Jesus, who is altogether far more satisfying. Lord, for the proud religious heart, for the 
stale, cold Christian. The impatient, seemingly mature person. Would you break their heart of compassion for smoky, offensive, bruised reeds? For the racist? For the cynical? For the sarcastic? For the constantly negative? God, would you revive our religious hearts as we come around this table? for the lost person that came in here not knowing Jesus would you cause them to see and savor Jesus to repent of their sin to turn from self-righteousness and self-reliance and trust in Jesus so that they would be made new in you pray that you do this in Jesus name